And I warned the parents, I'm like, she's going to get very sick because for years she had no immune system and she had all these bacteria that were swimming around in her blood, swimming in her system and eating her away. I said, the minute I give her back her immune system with these drugs, she's going to get super sick because the immune system is going to turn around and start attacking every organ in her body that had a bacterium in it. And that's exactly what happened. Within two weeks, she had fever to 40 degrees and she was sick like a dog and, you know, and we gave her steroids because, you know, we was like, okay, too much immunity now. Let's bring down your immune system. So we were playing and her virus went, became undetectable within two months. Uh, no, within a one, one month became undetectable. Her um, white count went up within two weeks. She started to show signs that the white count was going up and I, we persevered. And I remember I said, don't stop, don't stop. And uh, we had her on steroids. At one point, my colleagues even removed the steroids, like it's enough steroids, Chris. And I said, no, it's not. Anyway, so they removed them. And then she became quite ill again with uh, super high fevers. And she came into the ICU seizing because she was dehydrated because she wasn't, she was taking her pills, but didn't want to eat or drink anything. And we restarted the steroids. And for another six months, she was on steroids. And eventually, everything calmed down. And she is now 24 years old. Wow. She was the first kid in the world, the first kid in the world that I know of to be put on this cocktail of medication because they weren't even approved yet. Welcome to another episode of Just Us Dads. Thank you so much for tuning in to another Dadversation. George isn't with us today, but we do have a very special guest, and we're going to get into some uh, interesting uh, conversation. Uh, we're welcoming Dr. Christos Caradzios. Chris, of course, is here as well. Gentlemen, how is everything? Very well, thank you. Super. Uh, Chris, the doctor, this is the first time that it's confusing because usually there's two Georges here. So now this, uh, we have two Chris's. So. <laughs> we'll go with Dr. Carazios and Chris. It'll be simple like that. Yeah. But it's a great name. Like I mentioned before, it's a great name. I think it's perfect. Good for you. Good for you. That's right. You can call him, you can call him Chris and you can call me Doc. Exactly. Okay, no problem. There you go. Uh, thank you for, for taking the time. Uh, we know that you are an exceptionally busy person. Uh, and before we get started, I think we owe it to you just to thank you for everything you're doing because you're like literally at the front lines uh, during this uh, whole pandemic. Uh, this entire year must have been just one crazy experience for you. It has been. I mean, I'm an infectious diseases specialist, but the saving grace for me is that I'm a pediatric infectious diseases specialist. And um, thank goodness that we haven't, uh, that children aren't as badly affected with COVID as my colleagues on the adult side are. They have been hit with a ton of bricks. Okay, I was hit with a ton of rocks, it's not bricks, because we do see kids that are sick as well. And, you know, we've had to, we've had to change our whole lives around in the hospital and, uh, you know, everything, everything just, just because I'm not a, you know, an adult doctor, I still have to keep on top of the literature on the vaccination literature on everything that uh, that's been going on. I teach university. So, um, you know, I have to, I had to be there right in the front from the beginning. And, uh, 
helping out, you know, and of course, being Greek and being in the community, um, warning the community, warning the community leaders. Uh, I remember last year, this time, it was very interesting, me being on the phone with uh, the, uh, the Quebec uh, Hellenic Congress, the Hellenic community of Montreal, the, uh, the Socrates schools. I even had a nice discussion, phone call discussion with the Archbishop um, right before the big lockdown. Uh, how, how, but at the same time, because I had, uh, we had spoken last time when you were on my other pod, you know, the children's was also uh, modified to accommodate uh, COVID patients as well. So you were, you're like really smack in the middle of it, even though you're not directly uh, impacted because there's not too many children, uh, you're still living uh, oh, that whole situation. Of course, it's so weird to round in an intensive care unit and you've got like a baby and then the next bed is like a, you know, a 70 something year old lady with a stroke um, who doesn't have COVID, but was, you know, brought over from the Royal Vic because the Royal Vic was up to here with COVID patients. So they needed to some of the non COVID patients. So it's very bizarre to round on somebody, you know, like that. Uh, how is it like a year later now? I mean, how the the, the hospitals there there's less hospitalizations from what we're from what we're being told. I mean, the, do you a little less weight on your shoulders? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely right now. We're in a lull uh, because we're at the bottom end of the curve, uh, the bottom end of the second wave. the The fear is that it's going to start doing this, and it has started, has started to do this in Canada. Um, you've seen it in various European countries. It's like this now. In Greece, it's like this now. Uh, in Italy, it's like this. And they just went into their uh, into another full lockdown. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we're okay. Uh, the other thing that saved us this year is that there was no flu. Yeah. There were no respiratory viruses that were circulating around. Only COVID and some flu and some... Um, some rhinovirus, uh, you know, very few other respiratory viruses and influenza I was shocked to see that it's, that it just went away practically. And there was no community spread of influenza. Yeah. That helped us because we see a lot of children in during this time, my goodness, uh, with any, at any other, you know, year, it would be, you know the ICUs and the and and the and the wards would be full of uh, kids with complications from the flu, you know, pneumonias and other respiratory viruses like respiratory syncytial virus, uh, parainfluenza virus. We just didn't see any of that. Do you think, Doug? Just a question from my my end. Uh, do you think that's because people are more careful? Obviously, there's distancing and everyone's washing their hands and people are wearing the mask. But do you also think that it may be because we're not looking for it or we're not diagnosing it? Oh, no, no, we are looking for it. Uh, it Maybe Quebec, not as much as last year, but the rest of Canada. In fact, if you look at the Flu Watch, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada publishes a you know, a nice, uh, a nice website it's called Flu Watch and it breaks it down by week. Um, of the year, how many uh, cases have been identified, how many tests were done. We're doing just as many, if not a little bit more uh, when compared to last year, this year. So we are looking for it. It's just not there. And um, there's a, you asked the question, why? Uh, you know, I would say that the number one reason is the social distancing, the masks and the washing hands. 
That's number one. Number two, there's something scientifically called a viral interference where there are certain viruses that um, when present at large amounts in, in, in a population um, trigger what's called interferons. You know, if you get infected with COVID, you get interferons that are released in your body that uh, last for a while. So other viruses just can't attack you and can't cause disease because you've got these proteins that are naturally released in a viral infection called interferons. And they interfere with infection from other viruses. But it's not the full story. I don't buy that also. Um, there's something else that, uh, that is interesting. I think that what we were seeing in the beginning of the, the fall and sort of into the winter before the variants came and messed it all up, um, I think we were seeing a lot of air, airborne transmission. Um, mm -hmm. This is, you know, especially, uh, especially uh, in, in younger adults uh, who are gathering in houses in, uh, you know, before the restaurants and the bars closed, in bars and in restaurants. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of COVID transmission can be traced back to just speaking and talking loudly. And it's not just droplet and contact. In fact, um, you know, when you wear a mask, you're, 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 you're stopping most of these aerosols, but some do disappear and some, some do disperse into the air around you. And especially if you are with somebody in a closed space that's not well aerated or ventilated for a long period of time, transmission can occur like a house, for instance. And so, you know, in the first wave and the second wave, we didn't see a lot of children transmitting in schools because likely children don't transmit very easily um, a, an aerosol because they're short, you know, young kids are short, they don't have that capacity. Tuberculosis, which is a, a, um, an airborne mediated uh, disease, is not very easily transmitted by young kids too. So, you know, what we were seeing up until now was the fact that we were washing hands. So we eliminated all the droplet contact kind of spread, washing hands, wearing masks, distancing. Sure, viral interference may play a role, but also what we were only seeing was probably airborne transmission. And we weren't seeing it in schools very much because kids don't transmit very easily. The new variants though, they're a problem because they are probably more sturdy. Uh, they are probably more uh, transmissible, as we know, uh, 50 to 60% more transmissible. And if they, you know, are very easily transmitted, even by a few aerosols, we will see them in schools. And this is what we are seeing now, a lot of schools. Um, lots of these variants were being seen in schools. Hence, the reason why the government recommended finally to put masks on younger kids five years and older. Right. See, the public doesn't realize, but these are the these are the thinking processes that happen at the government level. Right. The, I read the other day that the Ontario Health Organization uh, announced the third wave. You think it's going to be? Yeah. Coming? You think it's going to come? Yeah, they are. In Quebec, uh, the R number, you know, the reproductive number that they're talking about. Every virus, every infectious disease has an R number, um, which means like an R naught is the potential number of people that can be affected with after one person gets the disease. So the R naught for this virus 
potentially is like two, three, maybe even five um, if left unchecked. And then this R number changes once you start doing mitigation strategies. So if we wash our hands and distance and wear masks and all this kind of stuff, we're able, and lockdown, we're able to bring the R number down below one, which stops the transmission, which means that it's not an epidemic anymore. Or it's not a pandemic anymore. Um, the R number crept above one um, in Quebec uh, this week. So we're starting to worry that we are in the beginning of a third wave. Um, and Ontario is, you know, everybody was saying, well, you know, Quebec is the only place in North America that doesn't have a lock that doesn't have a curfew. Why? And you know, the numbers are down everywhere. Da 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 da. Ontario, you couldn't leave your house in Toronto. Um, you know, without uh, you know, there was a, there was a stay-at-home order, even and, though there was no curfew at night. And the schools were closed also longer. Uh, and the schools were closed also longer, etc. The, what saved us, in fact, in Quebec uh, from seeing this earlier is, in fact, the curfew, because who is spreading it? It's spreading, the younger people are spreading it. They're getting together. They're having parties. They're going to people's houses and whatever. You know, people say, oh, what, the virus doesn't spread after 8 o'clock? Yeah, it does. But if you prevent people from going to other people's houses, you're going to prevent the spread of the virus. So, um, you know, we're starting to see that our numbers start to creep up and it could be because of the schools. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Tell no. me, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, just in general, you as a doctor in that profession, especially during this whole year, because this is a dad show, obviously. Uh, the whole work-life balance. I mean, it's hard to begin with just normally being a doctor, uh, you know, the regular schedule, the long hours and all that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, and then you add to that this whole year of just craziness. How is that at home? How, like you as a dad and as a family man? I mean, I have a very understanding wife where uh, she allows me to go down into the basement and uh, do these podcasts instead of hanging out with her upstairs. <laughs> Thanks. We appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's why I'm like, oh, guys, uh, can we do half an hour instead of... Uh, um, but no, she's... Listen, I mean, I yeah, she's understanding. Um, I sat down with her um, about... January or February of last year. And I said, we're going into a very, you know, even though nobody else knows yet, I telling you, we're going to go into a very rough few months in the next coming months. I made her watch the movie contagion so she can understand if you haven't seen that movie, I would uh, highly recommend it. It's like almost prophetic as to what happens. It's not, it's, it's like a thriller um, uh, that deals with a global pandemic uh, with an R naught virus of three, but a forty percent mortality rate. So, um, but you should—it's—it's it's exactly exactly what we are living, and it's like just fascinating. So I told her, watch this, because we're gonna go through this. She's like you're scaring me, you're scaring me. I'm like, no, 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 no. watch this, and this is, and so she understands my role in this. Um, my work balance. I mean, listen. I've got two young toddlers um, that uh, my wife is a stay-at-home mom for now. And uh, that has saved us because, you know, God forbid, oh, I have to go pick up my kid from daycare. And I got to, you know, this, that, that. So the, I've left that part to my wife. But when I come home, you know, I, I'm up, I'm, I roll up my sleeves and I'm there uh, giving baths, giving this, trying to, you know, put the kids to bed. Hence, 
asking George to do the 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 podcast at eight to eight thirty uh, to help me put down my kids, you know. Yeah. They miss me too. So it's it's been uh, it's and and it's been it's been it's been rough. I mean, in the beginning, I had um, I had heart palpitations last year uh, where I've had skipped beats. I would sit there. I'm like, oh my god, feel. I said I just missed another beat and then another one and another one. It was happening every three three beats where I would miss a beat and then my heart would go boom. And uh, that was probably because of nerves and because of uh, I wasn't sleeping very well and you know picking up the fact that. I had to deal with 225 university students that I had to teach online. So, because I teach uh, infectious diseases at McGill University, first year medical class, and I'm responsible for the, the whole course, the coordinator of that course. So I knew that was happening. So I remember emailing the university in, uh, in February. I'm like, um, yeah, have you guys thought of what to do? Cause I think universities are going to close and they're like, no, I'm like, yes. So, <laughs> um, so thank goodness though, that lectures are recorded. So I gave all my teachers who teach my course cause they are infectious diseases specialists and they were like up to here. Um, I gave them the year off. I said, listen, we'll just play last year's recordings and I will do the live like this, right? Um, I'll do once or two, one or two, three times a week where I would get on and have ask students, you know, tell me what questions you have. And I did teach live my classes but the rest of it was uh, was all from last year's recordings. And, you know, we're going into the same, I'm starting teaching in about a month and, you know, we're similar kind of situation, less recordings from the year before, but still it's a, it's a logistical nightmare, you know? Was there any fear, like, for example, knowing that, okay, I'm going home now, I just hope I don't have anything. Uh, yes. I mean, how was yes. that, like, in your yes. mind? Yes, in the beginning, yes, um, because I was also saved by the fact that when before we went into lockdown and during that first wave in March, April, I was teaching university. When I teach university, um, I don't do any clinical work because I'm there okay. every day, even though I'm not the one giving the lecture that day. I'm there listening to what the teacher is teaching my students. I sit in the back and I, you know, and I see how many kids, how many how many students are on Facebook and on Instagram and whatever, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I had no clinical responsibilities. So I didn't see any patients in March. Right. And kids, then schools closed and kids didn't get sick from, from it. But what happened was I had colleagues who were quarantining because they were, they had come back from spring break or they had symptoms of something that they had to quarantine for two weeks. So I would take their clinics, I would do their, their wards. Um, so even though that those two months were not clinical heavy, I did, I did do clinics and sporadic calls here and there. And yeah, I was afraid uh, that I would come home. Um, there were times where, you know, I would come home and the door to the foyer was closed. So I, my wife had left out all the, the, the sterile gels and I would clean my hands and I would take off my coat and I would take off my shirt and, you know, bring it down into the, into the wash. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Cause I don't, that's it's COVID is not spread that way. You know, it's 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 crazy. It's crazy to think how your life can change, especially for someone like you who's like really smack in the middle of everything, right? Yeah. 
I mean, we had it all planned out that, for instance, if I was, a, even now, uh, although I'm vaccinated now, I have my first vaccine was given January 21st, so I probably have a good level of immunity right now, um, but we have it all planned out. If, if, if one of us gets sick, there's the basement, you know, this couch back here is nice mm -hmm. and pretty to look at. My wife hates it, but, you know, <laughs> nice and pretty to look at, um, but we pull it out. And it's a bed and there's a bathroom right above the stairs over here. And if I, if needs be a tray of food to be brought down to the stairs over here in this bathroom here being used instead of upstairs, we will use it. I don't know where I'll shower, but it's a, hey, it's like a little mini uh, man cave. So it is, it could it be is. a good thing too. It is. I've got my big screen TV right here. There you go. My surround sound. I've got my bar. Chris, I just probably won't be able to shower. Uh, Chris wanted to no. talk a little bit about uh, the your your TEDx talk. Uh, Chris, uh, oh, oh yeah, that uh, yeah, a couple I, years ago, it was a TEDx. I think Laval, I think it was called, and it was a very interesting story. So I don't want to say anything about it. I, I'd mm -hmm. like you to take a take a moment and share that story because I thought it was very very interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm an HIV specialist. Uh, that's my specialty. So pediatric infectious diseases with a subspecialty. Um, uh, or super specialty, if you want to call it, a, um, a pediatric HIV, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, I've 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 had some difficult cases, and one of the the, the the TED talk that I described about was this girl that who had had AIDS, and she was dying. Uh, this was back in 2005, and she was dying for a while. I mean, she was she had AIDS, she had multi-resistant virus, she wasn't taking her meds well when she was a kid. So she burned through a lot of her HIV drugs. Her mother was, um, is still alive. Her mother is, um, uh, was at the time uh, illiterate. So, you know, even though we would write prescriptions, we'd give her the prescription she didn't know. And so when we figured out that she was giving the medications all wrong, you know, we color coordinated everything. But by that point she had burnt those, those drugs because the virus became resistant anyway. And she had this, other organism called atypical mycobacterium or mycobacterium avium intracellulari, which is a cousin of TB. And basically it's called wasting syndrome or stills disease, stills, mm. sorry, slims disease, slim disease or wasting syndrome. And it's exactly that you waste away. Um, and uh, she had fevers and stuff like that. And even that was multi-resistant. So we, I had, by that time I had um, left for Miami to do a year of HIV special specialty training in Miami at Jackson Memorial. And um, this girl, when I was gone, had told my colleagues that she doesn't want to live anymore, 12 years old. And she said, I'm stopping all my meds. I don't want, I just want to die, right? So palliative. And so they were discussing about letting her pass away. And when I was in Miami, I ran into a, um, a technician, a pharmaceutical representative who was talking about a new drug, Johnson & Johnson actually, so, uh, Tibotec is a Johnson & Johnson, Janssen, and then Tibotec, they're all one company. They were coming up with this new drug that uh, was, was good for multi-resistant HIV. And so I remembered that when I came home and my colleague said, I said, you know, how's our favorite patient? They're like, oh, she's going to die. We decided that just, you know, palliative care for I'm like what no hell no I'm not going to do this I said so I emailed that person and they they put me in touch with the uh 
with uh, the head of the, the, the division here in Quebec. And not only did that company come through to give me, I asked for um, exceptional circumstance, like, um, you know, a compassionate release. There were studies in kids, but they hadn't been published yet. And they were just doing the studies. And not only did they give me for free this girl, that drug, but also a second drug was that was on the pipeline. So I had two, I'm like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Two mm -hmm. drugs against HIV that I, so I threw those both at her. We put a, a hole in through her stomach, like a G-tube. So she doesn't have to take them and parents would pop them into the, and I warned the parents, I'm like, she's going to get very sick because for years she had no immune system. And she had all these bacteria that were swimming around in her blood, swimming in her system and eating her away. I said, the minute I give her back her immune system with these drugs, she's going to get super sick because the immune system is going to turn around and start attacking every organ in her body that had a bacterium in it. And that's exactly what happened. Within two weeks, she had fever to 40 degrees and she was sick like a dog and, you know, and we gave her steroids because, you know, we was like, okay, too much immunity now. Let's bring down your immune system. So we were playing and her virus went, became undetectable within two months. Uh, no, within a one, one month became undetectable. Her um, white count went up within two weeks. She started to show signs that the white count was going up and I, we persevered. And I remember I said, don't stop, don't stop. And uh, we had her on steroids. At one point, my colleagues even removed the steroids like it's enough steroids, Chris. And I said, no, it's not. Anyway, so they removed them. And then she became quite ill again with uh, super high fevers. And she came into the ICU seizing because she was dehydrated because she wasn't she was taking her pills, but didn't want to eat or drink anything. And we restarted the steroids. And for another six months, she was on steroids. And eventually, everything calmed down. And she is now 24 years old. Wow. She was the first wow. kid in the world, the first kid in the world that I know of to be put on this cocktail of medication because they weren't even approved yet. Now everybody's using them. But I remember what, I remember writing it up and sending it to a, to a conference, uh, the, the, the uh, it's called CROI. It's the big North American HIV conference. And they refused it because they said it's one case. So we can't make heads or tails out of it. Right. So I, you know, I lost after that. I, I, I didn't have time and I lost the interest to, you know, write it again and again and again. So you know, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the story. And that's my TED Talk story. You know? That's a great story. And uh, I, rem I remember you ended, you concluded that TED Talk was saying that's why you're a doctor. That was actually yeah. the whole. And uh, yeah, well, great, great reason, great purpose. And that keeps you going definitely, right? Oh, for sure. I had another a little follow-up question. Um, I, we know that, look, you're an AIDS specialist. We know that, I don't know, correct me if my stats are off, but 38 to 40 million cases, I think, around the world. Yeah. I think it's one out of four in Africa. So obviously Africa is a little bit more. Uh, Depends on the four? country. Depends on the country. Okay. You have uh, some population, some countries like um, Lesotho and um, uh, Lesotho, Botswana, Swiss, uh, Is Iswatini, it's called now. Um, they have huge amount, like 30, 40% of the population. Wow. Yeah. So, but, so my, my question is that, so uh, obviously, yeah, some countries in Africa, you see it more, I guess it's more common there. What is the situation here? Because I think in 70s, yeah. 80s, you would hear a lot of it, and then it kind of died down. 
like we it's not something people worry well at least we don't hear people worry about it too much well, well, what's the, the story here with AIDS? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, so in Canada, we have about, if I'm not mistaken, the last numbers I checked, about 30,000 that are living with HIV. Um, about 1,000 kids across Canada, 2,000 children, something. Which is not a full-blown AIDS, right? It's still the virus, right? Right, right, right. Okay. Very few people have full-blown AIDS in Canada okay. because we okay. have good drugs and we have good healthcare system and, you know, people... It's not like before um, in the 80s where we had like three, four, okay, five drugs. Now we've got upwards of 20 drugs that are, you know, and some of them, the, the newer ones on the pipeline, my God, they just got approved in Canada. One shot, uh, it lasts you for like a month and you just go back and you get another shot. So you don't have to worry about, you know, not taking your pills and, and, and having a resistant virus grow out of you because you're not taking your, your pills properly. Well, um, with the, early the situation is great where we've been able to stop, practically stop mother to child transmission, uh, you know, oh, wow. pregnancy, you know, before it was like 30, 40%. Now mm -hmm. it's like, you know, one, zero percent. I know people don't like absolutes. So the number is, you know, maybe less than 2%, we say, but it's really closer to zero. Yeah. yeah. How, uh, where are we with the early detection? Because I mean, how, how, uh, I mean, I mean, you don't just wake up one day and say, let me just go get tested for uh, HIV, or I mean, where are we with that? I mean, do, do what are the symptoms and how late do they come before? Too late? <laughs> That's the thing, right? HIV is like the big imitator and the silent imitator because you could be. It all depends on how good your immune system is to start with. HIV destroys your immune system. If 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 it destroys it fast and you get a weird infection. Or, or a cancer, or you get tuberculosis, then every person who has got TB is screened for, for HIV because these two you know, love each other. But uh, if you get a weird infection, they test you for HIV. If, they, if you get like a weird cancer, they'll test you for HIV. It all depends how quickly your immune system gets destroyed. Some people genetically, and it could be the virus, a more virulent strain, and it could be your genetics, or it could be an interplay of the two. Some people can be what's called elite controllers where they're immune, well, they're not immune, but they, they have HIV, they've been exposed to it, and they just don't, you don't measure it in their blood. And it's probably because they have some kind of mutation that, that allows the virus to die off and, you know, they're immune to it. Um, there are others who are called long-term non-progressors. And again, they, they don't progress. Um, and then there are other ones that progress. Most people do progress though. And um, so wow, the detection, I mean, listen, there's always... If you stick yourself with a needle, if you have unprotected sex, if you have this, if you have that, then yeah, you go and you get tested. And the window period used to be three months, right? They say, oh, we can't measure your antibodies for three months. But with the new tests that we have, we've been able to bring down the window period to about two weeks. Okay. You know, okay. um, Hema Quebec, their testing brings down their window period to about seven days. Is there more being done uh, for uh, HIV awareness and early testing, or is that not in, in the health priorities here in Canada? Or so the health priorities now, obviously, is COVID, but the um, for years we've been, you know, the, why is there a World AIDS Day on December 1st? There's a World AIDS Day, so awareness can continue. 
because what we are seeing, what we were seeing out of sight, out of mind means I can do, you know, I don't think about it. So I'm going to have unprotected sex. I'm going to have um, multiple sexual partners and not wear a condom. Um, in, in, in the, uh, you know, men who have sex with men population, uh, there was a big explosion in various uh, sexually transmitted illnesses in bathhouses and, uh, um, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, look at all, how many teenagers um, are having unprotected sexual uh, intercourse, not only intercourse, I mean, you know, oral sex and all this, not everything is 100% safe. Mm -hmm. They're not reminding people about it, then, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll forget. And a, a question, this is, uh, I remember at the time, it was very controversial, like the origin of AIDS, right? Yeah. There was uncertainty. There was a debate about it. Uh, it was a little bit contra- Do we know? Do we know more today? We have an idea. Lab? Yes. There's okay. a very there's a very great book that you should read if you can find it on Amazon. It's called The Origins of AIDS, and it's written by Jacques Pepin, not the cook, uh, Jacques Pepin, not the French cook, but the uh, the, the chef, uh, but the um, but he's an infectious diseases doctor in Sherbrooke, and. Um, uh, it's a very interesting story how this whole thing happened. We believe that the first leap uh, from chimpanzee to human happened sometime between 1911 and 1918. Okay, so that's, yeah, yeah. Um, and it happened somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, in near um, Uganda, um, sort of like on the western tip of, of Africa, the western tip of the sub-Saharan Africa. And, um, probably from bushmeat. Uh, you don't know what bushmeat means. It's, it's basically chimpanzee meat and hunting and, you know, cutting down the chimpanzee and getting contact with the blood. And chimpanzees have two viruses that uh, one is called simian immunodeficiency virus, which causes AIDS in chimpanzees. And they also carry human immunodeficiency virus, the cousin, which causes nothing. It's the reverse with us. HIV causes AIDS with us. SIV, simian, immunodeficiency virus does not cause anything with us. So anyway, so there was this interplay and somebody got infected and it was local. It stayed local in the villages, in the remote villages, whatever, you know, he had, whoever this person was, may or may not have transmitted it to his wife and to his mistress or whoever. And um, it's, but it stayed local. That's the important thing. And throughout the years, um, white man came in, uh, WHO, all these other, you know, non-governmental organizations that said, we got to, you know, stop syphilis from spreading or stop this from that happening. So they had vaccination programs or um, um, syphilis, uh, penicillin injection programs where they would go into a village, they would diagnose, I don't know, out of 200 people, they would diagnose 100 people with uh, syphilis, but it wasn't really syphilis. It was Yaws, which was the cousin of syphilis, but the test couldn't tell the difference. And they would give, you know, penicillin shots to everybody. One needle, right? Nobody knew about this. Mm. They thought they were doing well, but they were spreading it. Um, with the advent of industrialization and the sub-Saharan African continent, and, um, you know, the industry went from Larger, larger villages became bigger towns. And whenever there's industry, there's prostitution. And so this was all, um, and then it just became a bigger problem, an epidemic in, in Africa. And then what happened was Haiti. Um, Haiti was a big uh, gay friendly tourist area in the seventies. And so um, a lot of um, North Americans and Europeans would go to Haiti 
to the resorts there um, because there was, you know, it was it was uh, it was a gay free for all, uh, and there were a lot of migrant workers from Africa that mingled with the Haitian local Haitian population and infected the local Haitian population, and then the uh, those pop those population maybe many many of them were men who have sex with men who obviously had sex with tourists and then they brought it back to their uh, to their you know there was a whole interesting idea if you remember the the the, the flight the air canada flight attendant who he infected one man infected 200 people he thought he is thought to have been patient zero in north america it's probably not true i think there were many patient zeros okay. that happened and, uh, and then it just exploded in the 70s and in the early 80s. And that's when people started to realize that's what HIV is all about. And so that's the whole origins of HIV. All right, thanks. Wanted to know, this was a personal question. It's just me that wanted to know. It wasn't for the audience, this one. I would buy that book if I were you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Very no interesting book. The Origins of AIDS, you can, if you can find it on Amazon still. Uh we don't want to take up too much of your time. We know that you you want to get to your family. Just wanted to talk a little bit because again, because this is a dad show or family oriented show, we wanted to touch a little bit about you know the common diseases or uh, conditions that um, you know that that are in children, for example. Um, what do you see more often, or what you know what's happening in our hospitals? How should families uh, be careful or be worried? And how do they, uh, you know, the, the solutions or how do they kind of uh, overcome them? So right now or in general? In general, the, the common stuff that you, that you see. No, common things are common. Viral infections, viral infections. Yeah. Viral infections okay. That's right. Vaccinate your kids. Well, you know, make sure that they know how to wash their hands. Make sure to teach them hand hygiene and not to spread germs and bioterrorist camps called daycares, you know, um, and, you know, <laughs> the children are bioterrorists, but, um, but, you know, but what we have, what we've been seeing last year is, um, and especially now with these, after the second wave is this um, post COVID multi-inflammatory syndrome that looks like Kawasaki disease. You may have uh, yeah, yeah. heard about that where they come in, um, you know, with severe abdominal pain about a month after having COVID with high fever, severe abdominal pain, then they have a cardiac crash, right? They may have red eyes, cracked lips, a rash, all of that. So I would tell parents that, uh, you know, even after a mild COVID case, or even after an asymptomatic COVID case, they come in um, quite sick and they need ICU. And so what I would tell parents is that if your child suddenly starts to have severe abdominal pain and fever um, out of nowhere, you know, uh, like there's no gastro going around right now. Okay, because everybody's washing our hands and we're all wearing masks and stuff. There's no gastros. So think that this could be something more serious that your kid may have had a, 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 an asymptomatic COVID infection about a month prior. Maybe they didn't. Maybe you knew, right? Or maybe there were cases in the school that were COVID positive and your child never got tested because they went to quarantine and they never felt sick and blah, blah, blah. If that kid develops red eyes, cracked lips, red rash, or fever, high, uh, high fever with abdominal pain and vomiting, you bring them into the hospital immediately. Um, that's one thing that I can say right now. What we're and, that, and the main criteria for that is COVID. I mean, it's, the main uh, criteria for that is COVID. They are not infectious at the time. They're COVID negative yeah. when they do the test. But when you do the antibodies, you may find the antibodies. So right. the story is still, you know, and, um, you know, I, my team, my team, I was part of a team that published 
guidelines for physicians to understand this. And it was just published on February 25th in um, the journal Vaccine. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm one of the only two Canadians that are on there and the only one from McGill that uh, has contributed to that. So it's basically an algorithm for doctors to follow um, to diagnose uh, this illness because it's a clinical diagnosis. Okay. So that's, that's number one. I'm proud of that. That's number one. Number two, what we're seeing is, um, you know, in general, we're seeing a lot of kids that used to die in the past that are surviving. So we're talking because of technology. So I'm talking about the extreme prematures and the extreme, uh, you know, the genetic disorders that, you know, in the past they wouldn't survive because we didn't have the technology or the medications to, 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 to have that. But now, you know, we're seeing kids who were born like, you know, four months premature and they've got lung, chronic lung problems, and chronic eye problems and chronic mobility problems. But, you know, they are, they are still alive. And so we're seeing a lot of those kids who would be in the neonatal intensive care unit are not living and, you know, graduating out of the neonatal intensive care unit, but coming in with other chronic symptoms. And a lot of our floors um, have a lot of these chronic type, very complex patients. Right. And this, uh, what, what age bracket are we talking about? We're talking about like in the earlier years after or? Yeah. And we're talking about like, you know, anywhere from, the kid is just born and just got out of the NICU and is a few you know months old to their home, but they're home on home oxygen. They've got you know feeding tubes. They've got and all the complex problems that come with that. And so they come in with a pneumonia, or they come in with the flu, or they in the past, not this year. And then they come in with uh, you know whatever, right? Dehydration or a seizure that they had at home, etc. So that so we have to deal with that. There was a lot of that uh, in, 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 in inpatient pediatrics right now. The, the classic, you know, urinary tract infections, pneumonias, this, now, yeah, they, they come in, but uh, and we treat them and, and that's it. But we see a lot of chronic patients as well. Yeah, but for those, what are the chances of survival now? And uh, like, they survive. They survive. It's just, you know, the thing is, is that how do you tell a parent who uh, needed in vitro fertilization, for instance, yeah. and they had a very premature kid. Um, and, you know, the mother is like in her thirties or in her forties and she can't have kids anymore. And she really wants this kid to, to live. The thing is, is that, you know, a lot of these parents hang on to the positive of their child and they don't see, or they do see, but uh, all the, the difficulty that this child and the, and the, you know, a lot of them have poor quality of life as well. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it's very touchy, you, you, you know, but we do approach some parents and say, listen, um, mm -hmm. what do you want us to do if, if your child deteriorates to the point where we need to put them back on a ventilator? What do you want to do? You know, so we do talk, we do have a lot of these difficult talks with parents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That must be, that must be tough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. One, one, and I don't know how specialized or how much knowledge you have of this, but there's one thing that seems to be much more current now than it was uh, in the past, and that's autism. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of arguments suggesting that, you know, the the, the, the vaccines that are given to the, the, the kids early on, like the, the one or two year uh, old vaccines there, uh, there's some arguments that link uh, autism to that. But why are we seeing more... Uh, cases of children in the spectrum of autism? 
So number one, I just have to say, put it there is no link. Okay. The, 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 the stuff between vaccine or MMR and autism is flawed. The person who, who um, you know, Andrew Wakefield, uh, the person who uh, came up with this, this, uh, this theory back in the 90s did a lot of damage. He fudged his results. Uh, in fact, they, they, they withdrew his paper and he's lost his medical license and now he's in the world of anti-vaxxers. Um, and uh, there is no link. There's been multiple studies that have been done with vaccines and they have absolutely no link with that. Um, it's, it's the reason why we're seeing a lot more is because we're, we're recognizing a lot more. You know, in the past, autism used to be, you know, Rain Man, you know, but now we're seeing you know, the spectrum. spectrum. We're seeing, oh, a kid with, you know, who was, who's not as socially comfortable as, you know, me, he's on the spectrum, you know, or a kid with learning difficulties, oh, he's on the spectrum. So there's a lot of, a lot of that that's happening um, around the world. There's genetic issues as well. A lot of these kids have somebody else in the family that has some kind of neurological disease as well. Um, there is a nice theory that, um, uh, paternal age may play, you know, people are delaying having their first child now as they put their careers, et cetera, et cetera, first, and then they get married and have kids. Um, there seems to be some correlation with uh, advanced paternal age above 45 okay. um, that, uh, that is linked to that. So there should be some, could be some genetic issue there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows what else uh, we've been exposed to in our environment that may be affecting everybody, um, everybody's genetic makeup right there's a lot of research though and uh we seem to have made a long uh long progress uh with that i read recently there's a there's a whole um project now to create a huge center here in uh, in montreal for yes i heard uh, 50 million yeah Mm a lot of great stuff happening um Chris, we don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, we know that you want to get back to your family. Uh, thank you so very much for, for doing this. Your time is always appreciated. Uh, Absolutely. Everyone watching or listening, if this is the first time you're on the show, head on over to YouTube, subscribe, like, and uh, follow us on all the uh, social media and audio platforms as well. Uh, Chris, once again, thank you so much. Have a good night. And uh, thank, you. thank you all for listening. We will see thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a nice Thank night. You. Thank you, Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Bye, Chris. Bye. Bye-bye.